0: From KQED. All right, we're going to venture back this week to the 1960s and 70s, when the Bay Area was a center for many social movements. People took to the streets to protest the Vietnam War. The Black Panther Party formed in Oakland in response to police brutality against Black people.
1: We are talking about the survival of black people nothing else
0: women were frustrated by the gender inequality they faced daily and a lot of people started to think differently about how they wanted to live as many as a million americans decided to join communes group living situations often with shared chores and finances Today on Bay Curious, we'll learn more about one commune that still exists in the Walnut Creek area. It's a group that has been steeped in mystery and controversy over the years. One note for listeners, we do talk about sex in this episode. I'm Olivia Allen
2: Price, and we'll get to it right after this. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Founded in 1980, it's still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And still the pale ale that sparked a craft beer revolution. Sierra Nevada, still the one. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes.
1: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.
0: The Bay Area is known for its central role in the political, social, and cultural movements of the 1960s. So it may come as no surprise that the region also had a lot of communes. Now, the vast majority of those intentional communities have disappeared, but not all of them. Reporter John Brooks went looking for one that survived in the suburbs of Contra Costa County.
1: If you were a high school kid growing up in the Walnut Creek area back in the 1990s, There wasn't a lot to do. That's one reason why Sabrina McQueen has never forgotten the big purple car she saw driving around town.
3: They drop people off at the grocery store. So it's like, well, what's that? And that's when my mom told me, oh, those are the purple people. Purple people.
1: That is fun to say. Say it once, you're probably going to want to say it again. Purple people. Who could they possibly be? That's what Sabrina wants to know. She remembers in the seventh grade, she went with a friend to pick someone up who lived on the Purple People's property, a compound on some 20-plus acres.
3: And so I was so excited that I thought I was going to go inside and be able to see it. And then we got just to the gate, and that was it. You can't get past the gate.
1: What exactly was going on in there? It's one of those lingering mysteries to people who live in the area.
3: So um, I'm just wondering, are the purple people still there and what are they about?
1: Now, here we should tell you, the purple people aren't really called the purple people. I know, but that's just what the locals call them. Why? Because they're known to drive around in purple vehicles and live in purple painted houses. Do you know the official name of the group?
3: No. I don't. That's why I asked this question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Their real name is Lafayette Morehouse, and they are one of a very small fraction of 1960s era communes that survive to this day. Lafayette Morehouse was so mysterious to locals like Sabrina, she and her friends on weekends would drive to this one lookout point to see if they could catch a glimpse of the property. It would
3: be kind of like, hey, what do you guys want to go do tonight? It's like, oh. I don't know, you guys want to go like check out the Purple People?
1: Sabrina's driving me to that spot now, but her memory is... fuzzy.
3: Okay, so here's where we're gonna turn, but it has been 30 years.
1: Excuse me, we're looking for the Purple People campus. Purple
3: People campus? Yeah. Sorry, no idea where... you
1: never heard that? Okay, thank you. Funny, see? Lafayette Morehouse has a colorful history, which we're going to get into in a moment. But in recent decades, it's been quiet. Three years ago, the group was briefly in the news after someone left racist graffiti on their buildings. Morehouse's reaction to the media at the time, no comment. Naturally, I wanted very much to talk to the group, but they declined multiple interview requests. But I did find three former Morehouse members who did want to talk like Rebecca Benito. She took courses at Lafayette Morehouse in the 1990s. The group was so successful at attracting members, Morehouse branches sprang up around the country. Benito says she lived for six years in one of the sister Morehouse communes in New York.
4: You know, really the core of Morehouse's philosophy is that life is better lived together. And that we disrupted that in the 50s by shuttling every woman, every couple, off into their own houses. And then we invented Valium because of there were all these women alone at home going nuts.
1: In the 1960s and 70s, a lot of people were looking for new ways to live more fulfilling lives, at least more fulfilling than their parents. One way to escape the prescribed path laid out by society, school, job, marriage, kids, death, was to live together in groups organized around political, religious, or environmental ideals. Hundreds of thousands, up to a million people, try their hand at communal living, says Professor Tim Miller, an expert on intentional communities. Starting in 1965, I think you can date it that precisely, there was a whole new wave of communities came along. I would say by and large, these new young people's communities were not very popular with mainstream society. And I would say that's a very typical thing. In most cases, I think it's just that fear of what's different. In the 1970s and all the way through the 90s, Morehouse and Contra Costa County battled over zoning issues and code violations, skirmishes that were frequently reported in the news. The 1960s and 70s were also the age of the guru, like Timothy Leary, who urged people to take psychedelic drugs.
4: Turn on. Tune in. Drop out.
1: And Werner Earhart, creator of something called EST, or S. This was a program of intense seminars supposedly leading to personal transformation. What Earhart was prescribing was, um, I don't know.
3: People are that love is attention.
5: People are that love is attention. All of these different gurus had different uh, hooks.
1: This is Laurie Rivlin-Heller. In the early 70s, she dropped out of college and moved to the Bay Area. Here, she got interested in the human potential movement, the idea that people could tap into their unused abilities to reach their full potential. And that's when she discovered someone named Victor Barranco. The Berkeley-born Barranco was the founder of Morehouse, which had branches in a few Bay Area cities. Barranco had a successful career as an appliance salesman. But with more asked, he was offering something more than consumer goods. He was selling a new philosophy. The goal, remove the self-created obstacles between you and what you want. And he was good at it.
5: He would be able to see you in a way that most people are not capable of doing. The fact that he could so clearly understand who I was and where I was coming from, and he did that to, to everybody.
1: Barranco called his program for living responsible hedonism. That means creating a pleasurable life for not only yourself, but others.
5: The responsible part was that you take responsibility for your life and your action. Things could change, but it was up to you to do that.
1: The hedonism part, that's where the more in morals comes in. And a lot of it has to do with sex.
5: The sexual revolution, I guess you would say, was the hook for Victor Barranco. There were young people in this time period who were experiencing sexuality in a way that hadn't been done previously. And there were older people who wanted a piece of it.
1: According to former members, one of the tenets of Barranco's teaching was that a community functioned better when the women were happy, sexually and otherwise. The group is famous for a 1976 demonstration of a woman reportedly having a three-hour orgasm. Yes, I said what I said. I spent a lot of time looking for that tape. Didn't find it. But I did find some current Morehouse YouTube videos. In the Fundamentals of Sensuality course, we discuss the nature of orgasm. And in the afternoon, there's a live demonstration of a woman in orgasm for an hour that'll really blow your mind. Rebecca Beneteau, the woman who lived in a Morehouse commune in New York, was at first put off by the emphasis on sex.
4: They had a class where a woman was demonstrating being in orgasm for an hour. I thought that was extremely freaky. I didn't want anything to do with them.
1: But she did like the group's positive outlook and focus on people's ability to change. Now she offers sex and intimacy coaching. And she changed her mind about the one-hour orgasm.
4: They have a technique that also allowed me to sink into my body much more instead of always being up in my head.
1: Can you really have a one-hour orgasm?
4: Not yet, but I've gotten up to 27 minutes.
1: Mm, 27 minutes. Pretty, pretty good. All of this focus on sex has led to a certain reputation for Morehouse among its neighbors.
3: There's a couple rumors. One, that it was a sex cult.
1: Yes, the group has definitely at times been labeled a sex cult. So much so, they even have a question on their FAQ page. Are you a sex cult? I mean, that's complete nonsense. This is Marco Benito. He and Rebecca used to be married. He also took a lot of Morehouse courses. Then the two of them started their own commune in Philadelphia. Now he lives in a commune in Wyoming, so the man knows his communes. He says Morehouse didn't have any of the characteristics people associate with cults. For instance, uh, excommunication for leaving, financial coercion, you know, demanding that people cut off relationships with their relatives, that, you know, none of this has ever been practiced at, at, at Morehouse. If Morehouse isn't a cult, it has been controversial. In 1971, Rolling Stone published a pretty unflattering portrait of the group, complete with Barranco driving around in a chauffeur driven limo. The article implied Barranco was making a lot of money off group members. But Laurie Rivlin-Haller says there was nothing devious going on. Self-interest was an open part of Barranco's philosophy.
5: I would say that he put everything up front. The introductory course to Morehouse is called the Mark Group, where you are the Mark. So there was no denying that he had put together a hustle, but you were voluntarily entering into the hustle and participating in it.
1: Still, that Rolling Stone article later appeared in a book alongside a chapter on Charles Manson. Not a good look for any leader of a commune.
4: Using classical educational modes, More University is dedicated to the full realization of human potential.
1: Bronco later turned Lafayette Morehouse into More University. More University... More controversy. The university offered Ph.D.s in the humanities and, of course, sensuality, including sexual research. In 1992, the San Francisco Chronicle reported at least one course cost almost $17,000. In the 80s and 90s, Barranco sued the Chronicle and the Contra Costa Times for libel. Hashtag please don't sue us. The court threw those lawsuits out. One of the decisions is not safe for work reading. According to the court, a goal of Moore University's advanced sensuality class was to, quote, make friends with another crotch. Which, if you're listening, Morehouse, would be an awesome bumper sticker. The university shut down in the mid-90s. Victor Barranco died in 2002 at the age of 68. And eventually, the great majority of 60s communes faded away. Professor Timothy Miller friend of mine who still lives on one of the 60s-era communes said uh, when their community had a great out-migration in the 80s, he thought some of them just decided they were Republicans after all. But Morehouse has survived. The decades come, the decades go. And they're still doing their thing, whatever it is. Back in the car with Sabrina... We wandered around, trying to find that one view of the campus she remembers. We kept taking wrong turns, going back over the same streets, and then...
3: It's a purple house!
1: Sabrina's excited. She's definitely a Purple People fan.
3: I wonder if that belongs to... Oh yeah, I mean, that is... does that look like it's purple?
1: It's a nice property, with tennis courts and everything. But really, there's not much to see, and the group does right to its privacy. Sabrina, I think, is viewing it through the eyes of her high school years when there was this mysterious aura around this counterculture group right in her own suburban hometown. I wanted to know what she thinks of the purple people now.
3: It is kind of interesting that this has survived so long, which I think is so amazing. I mean, hey, if that's what they want to do and they're peaceful and they are able to be part of our community, sounds like they're having fun. So good for them.
1: I'm a reporter. It's my job to be skeptical. But I will say one thing. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, Laughing at Morehouse went live over Facebook. They were definitely taking safety seriously. But their aim wasn't just to survive COVID, they said that wasn't a high enough goal. They wanted to use the experience as a way to make their lives even better. If life pans you really sour lemons, make even sweeter lemonade. I got to admit, I'm still thinking about that one. That was reporter John Brooks.
0: Heads up that we will not be publishing an episode next week. We're taking an early Memorial Day break. But we will be back on May 26 with a reporting series on San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. If you like Bay Curious, I've got a request. Please tell your podcast listening friends about the show. We all like a good podcast recommendation, and it really helps us to grow. Thank you so much. Today's episode was edited by Katrina Schwartz. Bay Curious is also made by Brendan Willard, Sebastian Minio Bocelli, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is a production of member-supported KQED Public Media in San Francisco. Have a great week.
2: Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play March's trivia game? Every month, we'll read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a sweet prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is... This Bay Area high school holds the longest winning streak in high school football. They won 151 games in a row between 1992 and 2004. What is the name of the school? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck.
3: Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.